afternoon. This is week eight. Goodness, it doesn't seem like it's been eight weeks, but it has. We're on week eight of our summer series. And of course, the, the title of our series this summer is The Gospel According to Jesus. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, another two very short parables of, of Christ. Uh, and they have to do with the treasures of the kingdom. Uh, we will say, uh, let me say a short prayer, and then we will get into our lesson for today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this afternoon for your grace and hope that is ours through the shed blood of our Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for life, and we thank you for love and good memories, and we thank you for the gift of age and for the wisdom that comes from the experience. And we bless you, Father, for your constant presence in our lives because we know that only with you there can we have fullness of joy. We ask, O oh, Father, that you would give us the courage and the faith to accept life as it comes, confident that the future is yours and that we belong to you forever. And Father, we know this because your word tells us that. It's your promise to us. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. Starting today with probably the most common saying around our dinner table, <coughs> believe it or not, it has something to do with today's lesson. We've got, uh, well, at least one of our grandchildren is a very picky eater. And one of the things that we have tried to do is to try to introduce him just about every meal that we have, that we sit down together, which is quite often, is try to convince him uh, to eat some of the things that we're eating, you know, normal food. Uh, and of course, he always declines, and generally someone will say, how do you know you don't like it because you never try it? And of course, that is to no avail because he still eats what he wants to eat and we eat what we want to eat. Now that fits into today's lesson because one of the things that uh, I picked up this week was about, in, in this thing about the treasures of the kingdom, is uh, about the gospel message and about the gospel according to Jesus and how that compares to the contemporary gospel that we find preached just about every Sunday in most churches today. Not all, obviously not all, but many uh, evangelical churches and churches of other denominations will also uh, teach what we would call or what many people would call a, a watered down or a, uh, a seeker friendly uh, form of gospel. And that of course differs considerably. One commentator I wrote sort of compared it to American T-ball. Contemporary gospel, he said, is kind of like T-ball where everyone gets a chance to play, nobody keeps score, and everyone gets a trophy at the end of the season. And that, the, that, that the whole purpose is about building spiritual self-esteem and not conviction of sin. And so we do have a, when we, we talk about the contemporary gospel, as many people see it as compared to the gospel according to Jesus, there are some, some sharp contrasts. If you have your Bibles today, if you would, let's turn... First of all, to Mark 8, 34 and 35. I did get it here. There we go. All right. Of course, we have Jesus here is talking about those who would want to follow him. Verse 30, 34 in the 8th chapter says, 
when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And whoever desires to save his life will, life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And the 38th verse says, for, whatever, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes into the glory of his Father with a holy angel. Uh, several things that I think are important in this, uh, in this particular short uh, few verses that I, I think we need to understand better and perhaps an explanation of the, the use of the Greek here might help us do that. First of all, when he says take up his cross, he's not talking about some minor irritant that we might have. He's talking about a major uh, a major cross, if you will. It's, it's a major step that we take in our lives, and it's not something that we do, uh, you know, foresee, uh, uh, just quickly. It's not something that we do without grave consideration. It's not something that we do without considering the cost, and we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. The other thing is, he says, is that for whoever desires to save his life, when you use that in the Greek, that word save there means uh, about saving your life or, or, or continuing your life through your own efforts, or even gaining eternal life through your own efforts, salvation by your works. And the word lose there is, means to, to trifle it away. If you try to save your life by whatever you can do, you're going to lose it, meaning you're going to trifle it away with the things of this world, which will get you nothing as far as the eternal world is concerned. And of course, the, the, uh, the, the last word there is, whoever is ashamed of me. And of course, when he talks about being ashamed, he talks about us, and us uh, believers, followers, who do not have a witness, if you will, or who fail to witness or have a witness testimony uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, turn over now to the, to the next reading that I want to do, and this is John 12, 24 and 25, again, laying out very starkly the contrast between the gospel according to Jesus and what we commonly believe as the gospel of the contemporary church today. Verse uh, 24 in the 12th chapter, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And then in the 26th verse, he says, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. And so what Jesus is trying to do in these, in these verses, again, is to make a sharp contrast between what people sometimes believe uh, is, is uh, sufficient in following Christ. And we know, and we've already talked about in several lessons that precedes this one, uh, that Jesus did not, he, he did not welcome all comers. There were many people who came and who seemed to be enthusiastic followers of Christ or wanted to be his disciples, but he quickly uh, knew how shallow their commitment was, and he always tried to, uh, to deter them, as a matter of fact, and in some cases actually shooed them away. So the con 
third verse is this. Uh, verses, the gospel according to Jesus, there is a very sharp contrast. And of course, according to Jesus, requires some very hard commitments on the part of a believer. There's a Latin phrase that's called a sine qua non of salvation, which means that's the essential element of salvation. And what the sine qua non of salvation is, according to the gospel of Jesus, is that we have to forsake ourselves for the sake of Christ. It's absolutely essential that we do that. We cannot hold on to the world. We can't hold on to all those things that are dear to us and still be a follower and be committed to Christ. Our the two parables today that we're going to be talking about occur in Matthew. Uh, they are in the uh, uh, 13th chapter. It followed very quickly right after that, the parable about the uh, uh, wheat and tares. So if you go to the 13th chapter, verse 44, these are very short, but they illustrate precisely the truth that Jesus is trying to, uh, to tell about commitment to or uh, how valuable he considers belief in him to be, the treasures of heaven. And of course, these two parables show the incomparable worth of the kingdom and the nature of the commitment required of everyone who would enter the kingdom. Starting with the 44th verse, it says, The kingdom of heaven is like a, hidden tre a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And then the next parable says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who is seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold it all that he had, or sold all that he had, and he bought it. Now both of those parables, as short as they may be, impart two very critical truths. One of them is that the, the, the principal point being that a sinner who understands the priceless riches of the kingdom of God will gladly yield all that he has, all that he cherishes, in order to obtain that prize. Of course, there, there is a corresponding truth to that, is, which is made by implication here. And that is that those who cling to their earthly treasures, they forfeit the great wealth which is found to be, or which is a far greater wealth in the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, the, there, there is, if you go to commentaries, they will all have uh, different takes. Uh, as a matter of fact, for, for such short parables, there is a wide variety of opinion as to what these really mean. Now, the interpretation of the parallel of the treasures which makes the buyer of the field to be a sinner who is seeking Christ has no warrant in the parable itself. And it goes on to talk about other things that, might, that, that some commentators believe might be said there. But the truth is, is that the, the most simple explanation for what Christ is talking about here is that uh, uh, it, it's a normal one, and again, it is the most simple one, that these two parables, the most obvious interpretation, is that they portray the kingdom of heaven as a treasure which is more valuable than the sum of all of our possessions. There is nothing that we have, nothing that we could ever seek to, to gain that would be more precious to us than the kingdom of heaven. And of course, this interpretation is consistent with everything that Jesus has taught about the way of salvation previously. If you will remember when, when the rich young ruler came to him and asked him what he needed to do in order to gain eternal life, Jesus says, go and sell all that you have. And we know, you will remember that he went away despondent and dejected because he was a very rich man. 
and did not want to do that. Now, whether, whether we're talking about a, a treasure hidden in a field which was accidentally found or whether we're talking about a pearl of great value which, which came to this person after a lifelong search, we're talking about the same thing. At some point in time, in some way, they discovered that the, the, how wonderfully uh, it was to have the knowledge and the understanding about the value of the kingdom of heaven, about the treasure of heaven. And of course, the point of being is one who understands that priceless rich will but gladly yield all that he has in order to obtain them. Now, how do we acquire the kingdom? Now, we know that, that in, in other places that Jesus has debunked, if you will, the fake news that it's about lineage or legacy. We know that there is nothing, it doesn't matter whether you're, you're a scribe or a Pharisee or a part of the Sanhedrin or whether you're, uh, you, you, you were like the Apostle Paul and had all of these other accolades to your name. It had nothing to do with that. It didn't have anything to do with whether you grew up in a, in a, a Jewish family and, and everybody uh, obeyed all the laws or tried to obey all the laws. So it had nothing to do with lineage or legacy. You know, in our world today, lineage and legacy count for a lot. You know, we've got the royal family. We, in England and other parts of the world, we have, we have royalty uh, where lineage really counts for something. Here in the United States, of course, we, we mention all kinds of people uh, that, that might be a part of the political elite or they might be a part of some other elite group, the academic elite. But none of that stuff matters when it comes to obtaining the treasures of heaven. 1 Corinthians 2, 9, if you have your Bible again, if you flip over there. The Apostle Paul here is again trying to put that church there in Corinth, which had lots of problems, and Paul is trying to get them grounded in what they in fact already have and what they should be standing on. And he says in verse 9, he says, but it is written in here, he's quoting Isaiah 64, he said, but as it is written, the eye has not seen, nor the ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. Verse 10, he said, but God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Now that's, that's a verse in itself which is, is unbelievably powerful and unbelievably reassuring to the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is that we have been revealed those things which the, the eye of man or the ear of man has never, been, has never heard of before. But through the spirit of God, we, they have been revealed to us. And of course, I think that all of us who, who at some point in time of our life have enjoyed that joy of discovery. It may have been when you were, um, after you, you, you'd gone through uh, uh, your classes, or you may have been call, did an altar call in a Baptist church someplace, or a Billy Graham crusade, or in some other way, you came uh, to, to be convicted of who you were in, in Jesus, uh, that you were a sinner, and the only way for you to be, to be reconciled to a holy God was through the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and most of us experience the very emotional, if you will, and of course we all express emotion in a different kind of a way. It's unique to all of us. But the, there, there's a joy there. 
There's a joy that's unbelievably lifting and powerful and that we celebrate both internally and externally. Now, the Apostle Paul goes on in Philippians 3, 7, and 8 to talk about that joy. Turn over to Philippians 3. Now, Paul is, has, in Philippians, Paul has gone to great uh, lengths here to talk about not that he needed to, and he even confesses it, not that he has to justify himself and who he was and, and what his resume was like, and he certainly didn't send a little bio out to everybody, but Paul wanted them to know that he had reason to do that, but he did not, and here he's telling them why. I'm going to go back up to verse 4 so I can get the, the, all of the, the, the context here. He says, though I might... Oh, I also might have confidence in the flesh, meaning, you know, all of the things that I've done in my life, I can have confidence in my flesh because most of those things I accomplished on my own, the studying that I did and, and other things. And if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm moral. So he said, I don't know what your resume is like, but you should see mine. I have every reason to be confident in the flesh. I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin. Hey, that's lineage for you there. A Hebrew of the Hebrews concerning the law, a Pharisee, meaning he knew the law inside and out, upside and down. And in verse 6, he said, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. There was nothing you could point at me and say, hey, he's at fault here. Paul said, I was not. But then he goes on to, to really drop the hammer here. He says, but what things were gained to me, these things I have counted lost for Christ. All of that stuff was meaningless when it came to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I might gain Christ. He has exchanged all that he was for all that Jesus is. And he says, not only did he exchange it all from being, you know, at the top of the heap, at the, at the pinnacle of the pyramid, if you will, and now he's, he, he is actually under the pyramid. He counted all these things as rubbish that he might gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. I know that many of us, when we stop and we contemplate that, and we contemplate our lives, and we contemplate all the things that we have thought, all the things that we have done, all the sins that we have been a part of, and, and in our life, when we think about that, that we have, we, we have obtained the righteousness of Christ through faith in him. Wow, that, that's, a, that's, an, that's an unbelievably rich treasure that we have, and we have that by faith that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. So Paul is, he, he is saying that there is, there's nothing that exceeds the kingdom treasures and the joy of those treasures. Those treasures. He says that, but, but in order to inherit, in order to obtain those, he has to liquidate self. He has to get rid of all that which is, has been a part of him. He retains no privileges. He, he makes no demands. He safeguards no sins or self-indulgences, and he cherishes nothing more than Christ. And the same thing goes for us. If we are in Christ, and we cherish Christ, and we value Christ more than anything else, 
we, we will ask and, and seek to retain those privileges, regardless of what our worldly titles or worldly achievements might be. I think we probably have all run into people who are, unfortunately, sometimes they're in the church, they're brothers and sisters in Christ, who are somebody in the world. And oftentimes, because of spiritual immaturity or perhaps because of a, a, a poor witness, uh, they like to bring all of that stuff into the church and somehow be recognized for that and catered to and, and deferred to, etc. But Paul says, you, uh, if there's any, anyone who, has con who should have confidence in, the, in, in himself, it would be him, or in the flesh, it would be him. But he says, I don't. And of course, he's making the point that neither should we. And finally, this afternoon, there is a cost. There's a high cost. There's, a, there's something called the salvation paradox, uh, which, which uh, is just a, a paradox that says that salvation is free, but it comes with an extremely high cost because it comes with a cost of liquidating self. We, we have to get rid of the idea that somehow we're important or that we have achieved or, and somehow that we're worthy or we can do. We can do nothing outside of Christ. And so there is that paradox is that we are free in him. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. We are free, but at the same time we are free. We are completely surrendered to, unconditionally surrendered uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Romans 6, 6. It points that out. Romans 6, 6, he says, in, well, in reading 5, For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. When we are crucified with Christ, we're no longer slaves to sin. We have unconditionally surrendered to him. Now, when we, when we half-heartedly commit to him and we don't unconditionally surrender, well, I'll give you this and I'll give you this and I'll do this and I'll do that, but all of these things back here where we, where we retain some privilege or we safeguard sins or self-indulgences that we don't want to give up or that we cherish things more than Christ. Paul, Paul tells us uh, that that's not unconditional surrender. That's a half-hearted surrender. In Luke 14, 28 through 31, Luke gives us a, a very clear warning there about that. Verse 26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and his mother, his wife and his children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear, or, or, excuse me, the, verse 28, For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it. Lest after he has laid the foundation is not able to finish, all who see it and begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. In the verse 31, 
And what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes after him with 20,000? Of course, that's, that's the cost that we have to do. We have to consider the cost. Are we prepared to make the unconditional surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we, are we one of those who have, who have not completely liquidated self and we're holding on to things thinking that we can combat the enemy, we can meet the challenge, we can do what we need to do without having sat down to consider the cost? I, 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 again, I, I think that most of us have, have experienced in our uh, Christian, Christian life, uh, young people as well as older people who have supposedly made a decision for Christ at some point in time in their life and who have been very active and, and perhaps very committed for a period of time, but then for some reason, whether it be hardship, whether it be death, whether it be other kinds of circumstances, it might be divorce, it might be uh, something else, but for some reason, they turned their backs and they walked away from a commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, the, 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 the word tells us just like as Christ was talking about, he was, it, would have better, it would have been better not to have made the decision at all. It would have been better not to know anything at all about the gospel message rather than to hear the gospel message, accept the gospel message, or appear to accept the gospel message, and then turn your back on it at some, other, some later time in life. One of the things that, that, that uh, again, another writer has said, and I don't, I, I, right now I do not remember um, who the writer was. But he made the comment that hedging your investment in the kingdom is not a good strategy. Of course, trying to put that in the context of our, our financial portfolios, if you would, most of the time, financial advisors will try to, try to convince you that you need to diversify. Uh, if you're going to make a youth, uh, uh, whether it's in a mutual fund or whether it's in a stock port portfolio, uh, they will try to get you in some uh, very aggressive uh, stocks and some that are quite conservative, or they might, you know, direct you to some other kinds of ways, but they want to balance out your financial portfolio so that if something happens in the market, that you're not going to be devastated. Unlike that particular economy, the, the economy of God, the, the kingdom of God, is, is that we put all of our investment in the kingdom, and we do that through the Lord Jesus Christ, through faith in him. Any other strategy is going to be a failing strategy for him. Let me close with prayer. Gracious Father, we do thank you for your truth. We thank you for your promises. We thank you, Father, for the opportunity uh, to, to be witnesses to the treasures that wait for us in heaven. We thank you for this day and for, for Kyle and others who, who work to make it possible for us to, uh, to bring these, these lessons and, and certainly the, uh, the other videos that, that Tyson and others have done. And so we ask that you would be uh, with us this week and as we uh, attempt to go and to do uh, in your name, uh, that we might go safely and that your word might come back fruitful and multiplied uh, for the kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.